Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review, Father's Day episode 309. We're all a bit off today. We're working on our dad jokes and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> laughing. We're all wearing, you know, cargo pants. It's somewhat summer. I don't know if all of us are. I'm not looking. <laughs> I know I am. Eyes up here, Tom. Eyes up here. All right. <laughs> this is Tom Lawrence. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. And Tony is sleeping in today. Well, not sleeping in. He's being nap dad today. He's being nap dad today. So that's the thing. Um, his his shift is still causing. He was he almost nodded off on the last episode. He was getting by the towards the end. So we got to adjust the schedule and regroup and think about that. So and he's going to spend some time with uh, his kids today. Getting off at uh, he gets off work at like seven a.m. So it's it's different for him. He's a trooper. <laughs> yeah, he is. that's got to take a lot to to have a job shift like that. Yeah, definitely a big difference. I've never never done it before. He's stronger than I. So, besides being Father's Day, what's been going on the last couple of weeks, Jay? I have been in the process of relocating. So I did have a half an hour drive to the studio, and now I have an hour and a half drive to the studio one way. So, um, which I'm not complaining. It's worth coming for. It's um, a great house. Happy to be there. It's just living out of boxes, so I'm not as caught up in the news as I would have been otherwise, although I did find some items to talk about later. But unfortunately, I haven't really been working on any exciting projects lately because it's just been a matter of getting everything set up, getting the Internet going, the servers, you know, the server rack set up again, and TV, everything. So uh, hopefully next podcast I'll, I'll be, I won't be <laughs> off like uh, this show title. But on a good note, you now have full gig Ethernet between your devices. Yes, I have full gig. Um, so it's a basically that's you know the internet connection that I have. And in the past house, the problem was two problems. I didn't have an office, so I, I you know I work from home. That's a big problem. So I worked out of my bedroom, which you know you don't want to be in your bedroom all day long every single day. That's just meh. so I didn't have an office. But then also my servers were in the basement, but there's no easy way to get Cat Five down there. And I've thought about everything. I've asked Tom every possible question I could ask. So you replaced the house. I replaced the house. Well, I wanted to anyway because I needed a, I need an office. You work from home. You need a separate place to go. I didn't have any ability to you know create YouTube videos there either because of background noise and things like that. So um, all that's fixed. So I do have an office. Problem is, I ordered a desk, and I ordered it, and I timed the order to arrive the day before I moved. So when I got in there, I put the desk together. It consists of two boxes, one of which was completely wrong. So I don't have a desk. And now my office is completely empty with no ability to use it. So I had to order a different desk because they couldn't get me the replacement um, box in less than eight days, apparently. So I just went to the store. I'm going to have one delivered Monday. So, yeah, I'll finally have an office and everything will be great. So full gig, um, what I'm referring to is between devices is that I had power line going from the upstairs to the basement, so a power line adapter, which I think kept out at one or 200 megabit. Um, it's two gigabit. It's rated for that, but your actual... Throughput is much less. Yeah. Much less. So now it's it's like I, I just got a, a taste of it because I'm copying files between um, you know servers in, in two different rooms, actually, and it's just super fast. And it's normal for anyone else, but for me, going through power line adapters just to get everything, it's just a, a massive improvement than what I had before already. So, yeah, I'll have an office. And, nice. Um, yeah, the server set up properly I'll this time. I'll expect more content out of you then. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know what's funny? I actually, actually, uh, actually promoted your channel a little, little bit because oh. the Comcast guy came over 
and uh, I had a friend at the house to meet him because I couldn't be there in time. And he called me. He's like, yeah, this setup you have here, um, your, where's your Wi-Fi going? And then I tell him. He's like, oh, that's the most brilliant thing ever. Seriously? Like, you got the wire. I had a wire run to the middle of the house where the Unify access point can go. And then I get there. And he's like, I just want you to know your RSSI is the best I've ever seen from anyone's house. And he says, hold on a minute. He just ru- grabs his phone. He runs outside, runs down the street. And then he's like, I could, and then he comes back and he's like, oh my gosh, I could get a signal across the street and it's strong enough. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, what is this? What do you have? And I, I told him about the Unify. And then he's like, where can I learn more about this? This is the best thing I've ever seen. And then I, <laughs> I, I, I told him about your channel so he can go there oh, cool. and, and get some tutorials about setting the stuff up and he basically he i gave him a shopping list <laughs> here's here's all the unify stuff you need all the stuff you need to buy <laughs> and since it's a newer house i don't have the problem of like these walls that deflect wi-fi it's like there's no dead spot anywhere it's like the oh, speed great. is fantastic in every single room wonderful so good things coming and then maybe i'll have some actual projects that people will care about maybe i'll get back into my OpenStack or kubernetes stuff that oh. i'm meaning to revisit so and python Yes, lots of Python. In in my neck of the woods, uh, much like Jay, I've been living out of containers, except <laughs> mine are of uh, the Docker and Kubernetes version. Um, I've been I've been really heads down deep in that for the past couple weeks. That and combined with uh, being a youngster, we've got so many weddings to go to uh, the past the past month. This this summer is looking like four more weddings minimum. It's it's a <laughs> It's a busy time in my life right now. Uh, see, just that's a good problem. Have yeah. less friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, how about you, Tom? Speaking of weddings, I was at a wedding last night. You know, not it was family. You know, daughter got married, so there's uh, all the stepkids are married off, and I just got my kids left. <laughs> Eventually, they'll get there. Um, so, a couple of fun things that I did was I did a video and there's uh, cables laying on the table in front of all of us because we are admiring 32 gauge and 28 gauge patch cables. And these are actually really clever. So the video became very popular and caught the attention of someone who knows a little bit more about cables than I do. The, uh, this led to an interview by uh, Dan Barrera, I believe his last name is. Anyways, it's on my channel. Uh, he actually sits on the committee of both the TIA and then the International Standards, and he answered definitive questions about cabling. Like, I barely asked any questions at all. I would start a question, there's like a 20-minute answer, so I only, I think, asked him four questions, but they're brilliant, well-thought-out answers. Um, not just, you know, assumptions about cables, literally from the person who wrote the standards on these cables. Um, one, I learned why it takes so long because they're all engineers and they argue about standards. So from the time he started, it took, I think he's 14 years to come up with the CAT 8 standard. That's how long these standards take to come up with. I also learned um, the, the definitive answer of why CAT 5E and CAT 6A exist, even though having a lot of redundancy between them, they both can only do gig as far as what they're rated for. Why CAT 7 only exists outside the U.S. and Canada, but doesn't exist inside the U.S. and Canada? This was a confusing point. Does Cat, I thought CAT 7 wasn't real. It's real, but it depends on where you live. <clears throat> so uh, we dive deeply into topics of how uh, signal is carried, what the headroom is for the standards. What the headroom means is what, how much over standard can you go and still safely do it. So he even told me how they came up with the headroom on them um, and what the overages are. Because I know I've used cable beyond its standards and it's worked, but how far can I go before it really is beyond the standard? So yeah, 
fascinating stuff. And also what the little numbers mean on these cables. There's little tiny written numbers on there, but not on ones that aren't certified. And where the database is, you can look up these numbers to confirm that these companies were audited and tested. They're providing you cable that is uh, to spec and how that certification happens. Did he give any sort of insight onto all of the different versions of PoE and... Yes. How how do you think that PoE would work over like this uh, thirty two gauge cable? Yes, we we talked about electrical resistance, heat over time, and uh, even in my video, I link. And this is what got his attention because I said I don't know, and he says that's a sign of someone I like. He said, "Would well, you're actually to say I only know this much?" And here's where you can do further reading. So he says, "People who say I don't know are great," and he goes, "But I do know, and I'd like to talk about it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. So, uh, yeah, we actually dive into some of the electrical properties of cable and how signal travels on the outside of cable um, at certain frequencies and how voltages are carried, which also included a conversation about um, when people see cheap boxes of cable, which I know to stay away from generically, but not really why. We got into why you should never buy uh, copper-clad aluminum, <clears throat> which is one of the... Uh, problematic ones out there. It's about one quarter of the price because aluminum is cheaper than copper, but there's a lot of electrical problems with it. And we kind of talked about that. So I love deep science dives like that. And that video has like 3,500 views already, which proves that no matter what people think of the world, like, oh no, the world just cares about the Kardashians or insert mm -hmm. whatever pop culture reference you want. Uh, the reality is in just a couple days, 3,500 people watched an hour long interview with an engineer talking about cabling standards. The nerds are out there. We, we are, we are there caring about these very technical things, which I think is kind of resonate with the audience that we have here. So, so two things are certain. So he is the source and the source of information um, for that. And that the second thing is someone on your YouTube channel will probably still debate in the comments in. You know, it's just the nature of the internet. Yes, because... Still, still debate them. Yeah, in the following video I did, which was they sent us a cable tester to load test PoE. So it doesn't just tell you the voltage that's coming out of the PoE. It actually puts a load on it to see what the, if it's actually complying with the class that it identifies with um, in terms of uh, power output and range. And uh, someone, of course, commented, you're saying things wrong. There's only a single voltage for PoE. And I'm like, no, literally, there's. it's in their manual. And the guy that wrote the manual is also the guy who I interviewed. So tell him he's wrong. And by the way, it's in the TA standard. So, yes, you're, there's always somebody. And that's actually <laughs> uh, YouTube commenters. <laughs> I love them. Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of that that goes on in our world because it's a fast moving, fast paced thing with the exception of it takes a long time to come up with cabling standard because geeks will argue it, almost 14 years. Not, I, mean, I would say indefinitely, but there is a time up to how much they'll argue before standard is made. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, which I think is interesting, but um, there is a lot of misinformation and changing information because someone called me out on some video where I said something, but I'm like, you are correct. I was incorrect. But I was correct when I said it. The thing I said is not true now. And when I said it, it was true. And that's actually the problem in tech when things move fast there's quick iterations. Like, can you do this thing? No. Right here in June of 2019, this statement is factually correct. In September of 2019, this statement may be incorrect. And this is just something we have to deal with. Quit. You can't cite old ones if the product or the means changed. Because, uh, you know, just when you look at attacks and the attack factors for things there's new and surprising ways that we're attacking things that like, I didn't see that as an issue. <laughs> so it's, it's always fun to get it from the source and try to get the facts as, uh, as accurate as possible in the present moment we're doing it. So mm -hmm. that's, that's the important part. 
Uh, so other than that, I think that's about it. There's cabling videos, cabling videos. Uh, oh, I did a fun PFSense HA video because a lot of people had asked about that. Uh, people don't in with well, theirs is a failure to understand that when you do HA and things like PFSense, and this is not a the PFSense design problem. Uh, Cisco has the same problem, so in our firewalls, you end up wasting public IP address space. It's best way to describe it, um, when you want to put firewalls in HA failover. Uh, the reason why is because if you want two firewalls to fail over, you have to assign each WAN a public IP that is not going to be used for anything except for those WANs because they have to have something that's routable, but then they share a common IP address, which is the failover address. Uh, so I just had someone, we're doing some work at two different data centers right now where we're putting these in, and one person is okay with it because they have a uh, slash 29 block. The other person's like, I need all the IPs, and they all need to fail over. I'm like, this isn't the solution for you. And they're like, well, I'm just going to go back to Cisco. I'm like, that won't do it either because even though Cisco has a proprietary protocol versus the BSD cart protocol, the problems are the same in the way it's implemented. So that's been some fun, interesting uh, discussions of that I never really dove deeply into. So before you teach it, you have to dive deep into it. So diving deep into the explainer on that was fun. Mm-hmm. The, what is it? The unexpected delight of discovery, I think, is my favorite quote I've seen on that. And it really is like, <laughs> oh, it does work like this. Oh, it's kind of disappointing, but it's also exciting. <laughs> and seems like we should find your own way around this. I've had a lot of that recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you had a couple of bits that were off, and you learned about the unexpected delight of bits flipping in RAM that oh, shut down e- servers. ECC memory is a very fun thing, mm-hmm. except when it reboots a server as soon as you sit down. With a cup of coffee. <laughs> but at least you have the coffee ready. And yeah, that's, servers, that's very true. And when the server's out of physical grasp to just look at the console and perhaps somewhere else. I just <laughs> shout into the void. Mm-hmm. Making it that much more of a challenge. <laughs> yeah, mystery reboots at uh, at colos and things like that is always fun. It's it's like that that Schrodinger's cat when we push updates remotely and we're like, I hope the server comes back. I don't really have time to drive to the client. They're also closed right now. We the pushed... updates were neither successful nor failure until you've uh, looked at the logs. Yes. <laughs> So you've observed the logs. Yes, we were we were pushing um, firmware updates, and then I realized it was storming where the client was, so we immediately stopped. I, this is a new thing that I don't always have to think about, but we're doing so much more remote work. I now check the weather as a step. Is it storming there? Could this update go really bad for me? <laughs> that's that's wow. actually very interesting. At a previous job on our uh, metrics dashboard, we would have a a graph from like weather.com or Wonderground or one of those websites so we could see uh, storms moving into the region before we would uh, do any sort of maintenance. Yeah. And nope. we, would, we would account for that as well. Yeah, that's a, it's a little forward-thinking thing, but it, it's a real issue if I'm pushing firmware or an update and the power goes out uh, or blips, especially we were updating a bunch of outdoor Wi-Fi equipment. Um, a bunch of site-to-site bridges and things like that. So, I mean, I'm always weary of doing it because I'm afraid I'm going to lose, disconnect with the other side, what's on the other side of the bridge, which it links together a lot of things. So a disruption can be very difficult to solve. So and there's two challenges. One, it's far away. Two, it's uh, up in towers places. So to do firmware updates requires climbing towers, which is awful. <laughs> Especially no... if you're afraid of heights. Yeah, if you're afraid of heights. Like I am. Yeah, I am not, but I'm uh, lazy, so... Fear of doing physical labor. Is that a that a fear? I don't know. <laughs> fear of climbing up a tower because it seems like a lot of work. Technically, if you think about it, a fear of heights is a fear of failure. There, yeah, yeah. 
fear of falling. It's that sudden stop. It's not falling that bothers me. It's that sudden stop at the end, you know. I just, I just really respect <laughs> gravity. <laughs> yep, I do too. And electricity. And electricity. Yeah. I've zapped myself a few times. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on to some listener feedback. What do people say to us? Remember, you email show at smlr.us. And I know you had a backup discussion. Yep. Sure did. Um, so David uh, and I had a, a pretty awesome conversation. And the general idea I received from this is that it, he's basically thinking that it's just too easy. Like reloading a Linux system, backing it up, like there has to be more to it because, you know, if you come from a Windows world or you're using a proprietary operating system, there comes a point where you have to basically do things their way. You may not have as much access to things as you would otherwise. So in Linux, you have the Etsy directory, which you can just back that up, and there's your config files, your dot files in your home directory. you got your configuration already backed up, and you can reload the distribution, and then you can script package installs and have all your packages installed. And you know the conversation went on for quite a while, but basically, as I understand it, it's just... Um, you know, he, he says with Windows, it's just the basic, just the basic install felt like I'm in purgatory, waiting for all the updates and system reboots to finish. Mm. Was one of the quotes from David, and eventually moved on to drive images. Just wanted to get it exactly right, and was just kind of working on that. And um, and with Mac, he says a nuke and pave was a fairly straightforward process, and st- you know restoring files was easier than Windows. However, with the Mac, the base install was a lot longer time-consuming, and, um, you know, still had a desktop environment tweaking after the fact. So it's interesting he's using desktop environment uh, term with Mac. But I agree. It's just so easy to script all of that. If, if you have a desktop environment, generally you can just, you know, copy whatever folder or file in your home directory. So you have that. The Etsy directory have the configuration. So um, basically his um, reason for reaching out is like, well, is it that easy? He says, what am I missing? I don't think you're missing anything. I think it really is that easy. It really gives you that much control. Yeah, I just back up the uh, basic config files that I have in my home directory, excluding the SSH folder, and away we go. And and you could even just, like a lot of people do, have your home directory in a different partition. So, you, I mean, it's not a, a backup, but at least it saves you from... Yeah, if you do a reload, you can just reattach to the same home directory. Yeah, just reload your OS and then reattach to the same home. Yep, Um, that's also a good way to do it. So that was a a piece of feedback that we received as well. And then in addition to that, I thought we had another one. We had had an article sent to us by listener David Y. about uh, CERN leaving uh, Microsoft programs behind for open source software. Uh, yes. We are going to cover that during the show. So thank you, David. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion because there's a little bit more nuance to it um, that we'll discuss during the news section. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else do we have for... We had a message from uh, listener Brian H. Um, uh, thanking us for quality episodes. Um, you're welcome. We're <laughs> trying our best. And we'll get better with time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he states that he's lately been spinning up uh, KVM uh, VMs with uh, Vagrant. Um, yep. And we'll get to an article uh, and a piece of software that we found that makes that even easier. And you don't even have to use 
software other than your web browser. That sounds great. So Vagrant, for those that don't know, is a utility you can download that basically automates the process of spinning up virtual machines. It seems to be, in my experience, heavily VirtualBox focused, but it has other has abilities to you know go with other hypervisors and platforms as well. But if if you wanted something, I need the, I need an Ubuntu virtual machine spun up for this test that I want to run. Well, Vagrant will do that for you. I was using Vagrant with Ansible for a while. Um, I don't remember why I stopped. But basically what it allowed me to do was just, I want to see what this Ansible script does on a um, Ubuntu or Debian machine. And I could just spin it up. And then it spins it up, runs the Ansible script, and then it's done. And then I could shut it down and automate starting and killing it. So it's an awesome utility. I probably should use it more. Yeah, I really like uh, Vagrant for testing. It allows me to test across multiple systems at the mm-hmm. same time. That's pretty cool. Um, I've actually not used it. I just really do, I still do all my stuff in XCPNG because I have the server. I'm like I have I have distro set up. I'm just like I just press a button and I go. It's just for one-off things. That yeah, you don't really care that this particular instance remains for any amount of time. You want to run the test and just destroy it when you're done. Just just bring it up, take it down. Just, yeah, it's good for that kind of thing. Just like the Perl model, there's more than one way to do it, mm-hmm. and yep. that's the beauty of all of this. It's always my favorite thing I learned in one of the 90s when I got into Linux. I went to the Linux meetup. They're like, you're going to ask a question, you're going to get three answers, and probably all three are right. (laughs) (laughs) And that was like stuck in my head for over 20 years now. It's true. I see uh, a message from listener Roger J. Uh, Specifically, I believe that went to um, our J about uh, System76 and uh, various docs that you can use. Oh, yes. Thank you for reminding me about this one. I actually did want to talk about this because for those that don't know, my goal has been for a while to find the perfect laptop. Uh, You know, basically what that means, I guess, perfect for me. But what that means is I could use it for gaming. I could use it for editing my video and it could just be like my all in one machine. And that's sometimes a challenge because, you know, every model laptop excels in some aspects and then fails in others. So maybe I might have a laptop that meets those requirements, but it doesn't work well with games. And that's been my challenge. I have a gaming desktop, and then I have my laptop for everything else. But I still have to maintain two machines. Nowadays, video cards and laptops, it's getting better. So, I mean, it's getting there. But then docking stations, you know, when I was coming up in the industry, that we called them port replicators. And they're these big things that you clip onto your laptop, and you have setting at your desk it takes up a lot of space and only the business laptops would support it so you know your thinkpad uh t-series your latitudes from dell and with the weird proprietary connectors exactly yeah. right so with USB-C and now thunderbolt we have the, we have hubs uh basically that allow you to pass through power so you plug your power cord into it if it's a USB-C power cord and then that passes through to your laptop so now it's charging off the hub you could attach your keyboard and mouse to it so now you have that so, and then your monitor, if it carries DisplayPort or HDMI, then essentially you can plug in all your peripherals and have one cable. So, um, basically, um, in this conversation, that he's talking about how System76 wrote an article for docking station support, and they're talking about pluggable docks, which I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But we've changed a lot since then. The pluggable docks are USB 3, and I don't like them at all because they require display link drivers that only support LTS. So you have to be running LTS Ubuntu. So if you're running something that isn't, it won't work. 
you might be able to get it to work. And I think, you know, if you hack away at it, you could probably figure it out. I've had it fail even on LTS. So even on what, what they, DisplayLink provides a driver, so you just download it, but it doesn't always work. And when it does, there was, for me, there's lag, so you, you know, move a window around the screen. Yeah. It just jitters. So I had that problem. I don't like those, but USB-C is built into the kernel. And I believe Thunderbolt is as of a certain, I don't, don't quote me on that. Either way, with USB-C, there's no driver to install. It just, you just plug it in and, and it, it works, works and, and it's good to go. As long as the laptop, the laptop has to carry DisplayPort or HDMI through the USB-C. So simply having USB-C is not enough. And just because you have USB-C doesn't mean your laptop charges over USB-C. So these are things that you have to actually look into. If you want a laptop that does all the things off of one cable, make sure there's power delivery through USB-C, make sure it carries DisplayPort. You have to kind of research because there's while USB-C is a standard, how the laptops offer that is not a standard. So you have to look at that first. And what I've found is that System76, several of their laptops have a lot of that. The Darter Pro, which I reviewed, has all of that. It carries USB-C. I mean, it carries power and display over USB-C. So you can have one um, connector for everything, but it doesn't have a gaming card, though. So if you want it to also be a laptop to play games on, then the Darter Pro is not the one you should choose because it doesn't do that. Their Oryx Pro, which I'm, you know, I just finished reviewing, has a gaming card, but it doesn't charge over USB-C. So, you know, you get, you get these varying levels of things. But then my work laptop is an X1 Extreme from Lenovo, and it does carry power over USB-C, but the video card requires more power than USB-C can deliver. So it's just going to slow down the discharge of the battery. But then I bought a Thunderbolt dock that does, like I think it's like 200 watt or something. It actually does charge it and keep it charged from one cable, plugs in my monitor, keyboard, mouse, everything, keeps it charged. But that's also a $200 um, Thunderbolt dock. So the ability to do this does exist today. It's just that you really have to research that the laptop you want does all the things you want it to do before you buy it. Otherwise, you might find yourself connecting two cables, one to power it and one to do the other things, which might not matter to some. But if you're very picky and choosy like I am, you pro you may not want two cables over your desk. So. I had that exact problem with uh, one of my X1 Carbons. Mm -hmm. I could I could plug in the dock, but then I had to plug in a secondary cable um, to do anything else. And if I wanted uh, external monitor on it, um, that was that was pretty much a crapshoot. Yep. Even though the dock supported external monitors, it didn't always work. And that was straight from Lenovo, which was very very frustrating. That would be frustrating. I could tell you that their newer X1 carbons do that all, um, as far as I'm aware. And this laptop in front of me is a ThinkPad T480S. It does all that. And it's the same, I mean, they're the equivalent X1 Carbon does the same thing as well. It charges over USB-C. It does display over USB-C, keyboard, mouse, everything. It just doesn't have a gaming card, but it does allow one cable for all the things. And I don't need the Thunderbolt dock that's really expensive. I can buy a $60 USB-C hub and it'll, it'll still work. So nothing advanced is needed here. And you, you can't, I guess the point is you can have a one cable setup for docking today on Linux. You just have to do the research first before you buy the model that it supports power over USB-C, that it's able to deliver enough power for the GPU if it's gaming. 
and, you know, basically just have to check all those different things. And, you know, maybe System76 will send me another laptop, and I'll see if that one will meet that. The Oryx Pro, I didn't get that to charge over USB-C. Otherwise, it would have been the perfect machine for me. Because um, it had everything. It has everything. I mean, yeah, it's a little large. It's 16 inches, but I, it's I great. And and to the point is they really should brag more at System76, which is actually the subject of the yeah. email. <laughs> they do a lot more. There's a lot more than a skin on Ubuntu, which is always right. someone's angry comment every time I say System76. Isn't it just Ubuntu with a little bit of polish? No, it's a lot yeah. more than that. The under the hood stuff they do to make all that work out of the box is great. Yes, we know you can add this feature right. or that feature to Ubuntu. No, they didn't do anything that you can't take Ubuntu and add to, but that's the point. You don't have to go spend right. all this time adding all these little features. It just comes out of the box with it, which yep. if you want to create an end user experience that's better, and I say end user experience, that's what this is. Yeah, right. any of us sitting at the table, we customize the hell out of everything. So <laughs> as, as much as we may yeah. like using it, we also know, yeah, I know I can do that. But sometimes it's nice. I want to I want to hand someone a computer that just yep. works for them. I think the biggest benefit of System76, in my opinion, is that the, the benefit that Windows and Mac users have that I think they take for granted is they can go buy a computer and then their favorite operating system is set up. They're done. You know, you buy a Mac, it's got Mac OS, it's set up, you're all set. And I wouldn't Windows. call it their favorite. I would call it just what they're used to. I don't or think... Preferred platform or yeah, whatever it Yeah, I would say preferred be. platform because most right. end users, they absolutely don't care. It's, right. There's not a... They, we are steps further thinking about it more than they do. I think, I think you're exactly <laughs> right, but I think power users and above do have a preference. But, power but they, users, yes. They can... Their preferred platform, they just buy the machine, they sign in, they're done. And what System76 offers us Linux users is we're not represented very well. They represent mm-hmm. us by giving us a machine that runs what we want and prefer. Yeah. And it runs that out of the box, and they take the time to make sure the parts are compatible. So, yeah, I'll tell you, I can install Arch Linux almost out of memory at this point, um, as sad as that might be to say. But, <laughs> you know, I, I, I for sure can build my own computer. I can choose a laptop that has the parts in it that I know will work. I can install Arch Linux, even if it doesn't work. And if I wanted to, customize it and fix any problems that I come up with. But at the end of the day... Even I sometimes just want something that works out of the box. And I think that's the value that everyone should look at is just because you can customize that or do that and rule your own, not everyone's going to want to do that. So I think that's the value that they offer. Well, I think that's all we have for feedback. That's all that I saw. I believe so. All right, moving on to Distro Fever. What is the latest distros out there? I saw a few. Yeah, I mean, normally it, we we will always go to you know Distro Watch and just see what the what's on the news there. But we always, or not always, but sometimes we'll we'll come up with one that's not even on the list. Uh, and uh, there's a couple actually that were mentioned in the news recently that are not there on the list as of yet. Regolith Linux is an i3 Ubuntu spin. i3 is something that I've wanted to look into for a while. I did use it for a while. And that what i3 is, is a window manager, which is like a desktop environment, but not as many features, or most of the time, no features. But it's a tiling window manager, which means your windows don't float around the screen. They actually uh, go to preset quadrants of the desktop, which um, a lot of people really do enjoy i3 can be painful to set up. So Regolith Linux is a distribution based on Ubuntu that is is hoping to make 
I3 easier to get going. So there will be an article in the show notes about that. So if you're interested in checking out I3, I have not checked this out yet. I'm hoping to. And maybe I'll even review it, but there's an article about it if that's something you wanted to check out. But what's interesting as well is if you already have Linux set up and it's Ubuntu-based, they also have a PPA where you can basically get their customizations on your current distro, Ubuntu-based distro, and basically convert it into i3 or add an i3 window manager set up their way as an option. So have you guys used i3? I've never had I've tried it. I've also tried Awesome and W3M. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just my skill level, but I can't get the hang of it. Yeah, I found i3 to be awesome and awesome not to be awesome. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Honestly, for me, though, I know I, I, sh- I should be careful because awesome has an extremely huge following. A lot of people love it, and it is good. Don't get me wrong. I, I felt i3 was more approachable for me than awesome was at the time that I used it. Now, um, I, I guess I use Screen and Tmux to do some of that for me because mm-hmm. most of my days are spent sitting inside of a terminal emulator. Mm-hmm. Um, but not not all the time do I want my Firefox browser to take up exactly like one half of my screen or one third of my screen. I think in this case, Firefox wouldn't be that. When I was looking into tiling, and I might get back into this, the problem with floating window managers is that it's so easy for a window to be behind another window, and sometimes you might have things hiding and you don't know what's running. And it forces everything to be in front of you. I think a web browser would be something you'd want to take up the entire screen. It'd be on its own workspace. So that might not be something that you want in a quadrant or, or something like that. Same with a video. I mean, if, unless you're multitasking and watching a movie at the same time you're working. If you're not doing that and you just want to focus on the movie, you'd probably want that to be full screen. So I think with these tiling window managers, they give you the ability to have certain apps that just take up a whole workspace, whole screen. I think browsers generally you probably want it to be that but it has it's not for everyone and it it forces you to think about things in a different way i think it's something that every linux user should probably just try out and you know maybe this is one way to do that if it's on a live cd then you know just maybe boot it up and see what you think of it just to check the box or what have you might be something to, to consider and some people really love it they really make this part of their workflow in addition to that, I saw another one. And this is interesting because there's actually a countdown timer on this one. <laughs> Endeavor OS. So a background here. Antergos, Antergos, however I'm supposed to say that. I guess it doesn't matter anymore because they're going down and they're discontinuing. I liked Antergos because they were an easy way to get Arch Linux set up. And I thought it was a good setup. It wasn't like completely bare bones, but it was good enough or close enough. But they gave up on that because they you know, don't have enough time to devote to, to that. So Endeavor OS hopes to take Antergos, which is an easy way of setting up Arch Linux, and continue that. And if you go to their website, it, depending on if you're, you know, when you're listening to this, there's a countdown, 15 days, until you're actually able to, to find anything. It's, it's got a landscape picture on their website. looks like a very beautiful river and some mountains in the background. It's actually probably somewhere I want to be right now, considering how cl- cloudy and cold Michigan is these days. Um, so it's pleasant to look at, but it doesn't tell me anything about their distribution. Um, the article in the show notes I'm linking to mentions its goal is to be as close to Arch as reasonably possible to, un- to avoid unnecessary bloat. 
while still being convenient and easy to install. So it sounds great, and I'm hoping that this might be something I'll get into. I'll, I'll definitely review it. The problem is it's extremely easy to fork a distribution. Easiest thing you'll ever do, to do it well, to maintain it, is. to have it not explode, <laughs> to have it not the weight of the world and the responsibility of it you know, fall on your shoulders and, and you know harm you. I mean, just like, it's just like, that's the hard thing. I mean, it's, it's anybody could say they want to do it. Can they do it well? I hope they do because I feel like this is something that we need and easy yeah. to install Arch Linux. There's a, there's a place for this. There, there's a desire for this. People want this. But when they realize how much of a workload is, it is, um, I hope they're prepared for that, and I hope they succeed, because I, I think this is a great thing for them. And, and and this is also not on the DistroWatch site we normally check. Um, one of the things I've seen in here in terms of firewall releases is the new version of Untangle. Yeah, I just opened up their demo website to see what it looks like. I've had experience with Untangle in the past. Yeah, it's a nice firewall. I've done a review of it. Um, I've actually done a couple of them. One of the things Untangle does that PFSense doesn't do um, is better and tighter integrations into things, including Active Directory or, for example, if you want to do selective routing, Untangle's just, I know exactly how to do that in PFSense, and I have a long video about it. I have a long video on how to do things like how to put your whole office under a, a VPN, uh, like for privacy concerns, like well, home or office, uh, things like that. I have like a 20-minute PFSense video, and I have a six-minute Untangle video on how to do it. Uh, they've automated a lot of that. You can literally download like from PIA Internet and download the config file and upload it and then check boxes. Well, the new version of Un- uh, Untangle now adds a lot more Azure uh, Active Directory support, which is also really cool because this question comes up constantly is they want PSNs because they see me talk about it, but then they go, but I need to filter all my users. Well, there's where you run into a problem. Uh, they've done a better, tighter integration because Squid is almost a dead project but it's not at the same time. It just doesn't receive a lot of updates. Um, they're one of the few people that kind of take Squid to the next level and make it easy to integrate so you can do content-level filtering. Granted, it doesn't require installing certificates and things like that to be able to uh, control the machines. But I also, they're open source, but all those extra features are premium things that you have to pay for for Untangle. So before you get too excited, like this is the end-all you know, solution for all of my filtering woes. It is, but they do have a home user edition. I think it's like 50 bucks a year. So it's not like it's a lot of money and most of the features are free. And the thing I like about their business model is the extra features are what they charge for. Uh, It does not turn into a pumpkin at midnight when you don't pay the ransom of licensing fees that people put it. Uh, It just loses like the filtering features. They just turn off and you can surf the web without them. So that's not a bad business model. It has a very attractive dashboard. Yes. Far, far more so than PFSense. Mm, yes and no. It's really cool looking because they have better reporting. Uh, their firewall rules, they could still learn a few lessons for advanced fair, firewall rules. Fair enough there. So it depends on where you catch it. The firewall rules in PFSense, hands down for all the firewalls I've worked on, I like their firewall rules the best. Everything else, and I will call them out for this, why is rebooting a PFSense not in our system? It's in our diagnostic. Why? Why would you put diagnostic as a true? Why isn't it under system? Like everyone looks for under system and because someone's like, how do I reboot this thing? Go under diagnostic. Well, I don't want to diagnose it. Well, that's where they put the reboot option. I don't know why that's a, that's a, that's the wrong place. I'm just going to throw it out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You would think there'd be like an upper right corner, a little icon to 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 restart something. And yeah, it's almost like where 
Windows put the shutdown icon or button or whatever in Windows 8, the original release. I can't remember where that was because it's in such a weird spot. But, yeah, it's like, why would they put it there? Yeah, it's kind of like that, too. So um, Untangled overall, I mean, we've used it. We've deployed it for clients. They like it. Um, they do have a license fees. That's sometimes what turns people off because they assume it's – and I at first didn't realize that it was a 100% open source project. It is, but they have their freemium features is the best way to describe it. So, mm-hmm. but they're, they're all their features that they have are supported by feeds and you're actually not paying for the software as much as you're paying for the feeds and the data and the analytics that come with it, like your threat protection and stuff like that, that, that is not a static piece of information. What websites post threats or need to be filtered is dynamic and they're, you're paying for their knock team to keep that data up to date and flowing to the untangle box. So it does update itself even without a license on it. So like your general functionality as a router, it routes without a license. So hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a good product. Definitely take a look at it. Um, I Like I said, I have a, a pretty in-depth video review of it um, that I put together. I'm one of the few people that did. So there's not many. If you look for Untangled videos, I think there's like me and them. <laughs> That's you, it. You captured the market. I captured the market because no one else wanted to take a deep dive into it. But it's it's a good product. I think that's the only one that's I seen on here. Uh, there is a FreeBSD 11.3 uh, development release candidate. Oh. So we're getting closer to an actual 11.3 coming out, which is going to be pretty nice. Yes. But will we get the, uh, what do you call that? Oh, what's that firewall everyone wants? I'm, I'm sorry, VPN everybody wants. OpenSense? No, 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 no. The WireGuard. New, WireGuard. WireGuard, yes. Will that, will that make it in? How... How is WireGuard coming along? Because there was some license compatibility issues, but the WireGuard person had commented that they were willing to um, come along to change things to match so it works in the BSD world, which was exciting. Hmm. All right. I think we have some news to talk about now. Lots of things happening. Where should we start? Do you guys Do you guys want to start or do you want me to start? I, I have um, probably less news okay knock that out quicker so the first actual two things are related they're firefox news firefox is my favorite browser or or at least it's my my current browser i have been looking at google chrome because it does seem to perform a little bit better but i like the fact that firefox is open source and i want to give the disclaimer that what i'm about to mention is it's listed as a rumor on the omg ubuntu site but what they're quoting kind of seems to be more than a rumor. I think what the rumor is they're referring to is that this is coming later in the year, but what they're referring to is Firefox Premium, which, um, you know, it doesn't seem like it was, it's been getting that much coverage outside of this, but basically we don't know what Firefox Premium actually will be, but it seems like it's going to give additional features on top of Firefox that they're not going to change the current one we have now that's free. That'll stay the same, but they're going to have additional features that they'll build on top of what we have now. And one of the things that they were talking about is VPN, which um, Opera has already, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I'm wondering uh, what the difference in that service is going to be like compared to Opera. Opera has been free ever since they released that feature over a year ago. So how does Opera, you know, fund that for free? Is there a limit on speed or do they cap it at something or do they get like, do they show ads while you're connected to it? I'm just curious. I've never used it personally. Yeah. And I know they talked about integrating Tor more tightly into just all of it, like 
not just the Tor browser, but the uh, general Firefox having Tor into it, which actually be really cool. Mm-hmm. Because the more people that use Tor, um, the better Tor gets in terms of an- anonymity, because the more noise you have on the line, it's harder to pinpoint where people are. I, I would, um, I just want to say, I'd gladly pay for Firefox. I mean, I, I could donate any time. So, I mean, this doesn't give me the ability to pay them, and I didn't have the ability bef- to do so before. But having a, if it's a subscription-based thing, I don't know what it's going to look like. I'll I'll subscribe to it and, and give them money, especially considering how much I use Firefox. Yeah. I'd be more than happy to, to give Mozilla money. And I think that there's been a challenge with Mozilla. They, they've kind of struggled a bit to, to get funding for their browser. They'll make a decision that maybe the general public thinks is a bad idea just to get, you know, the money for their project. I personally feel like this is a good way to do it. If they offer a service like this, I would gladly pay for it. The developers deserve that and they work really hard on it. I think they have a great product and it's certainly a lot better than showing me ads. So, um, you know, for the free version, if if I'm just paying for extra features, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. And in addition to that for Firefox news and this one, I might be a little bit skeptical about is that they've They've decided to change the logo again for the 10,000th time. Um, it seems like I was just getting, I mean, used to it before. And this one is kind of confusing because they, they basically are looking, Mozilla's looking at a Firefox family of products. And that includes Firefox Send, Monitor, Lockwise, and, of course, the browser itself. So they have the generic icon, which I kind of like. It does. It just has, it's just a swirl, simple, simply a swirl. And that's the logo to represent the Firefox family. The browser still, I mean, it's a different uh, icon, but it's not much different. So I actually would like the Firefox family icon to be the browser icon. I don't really feel like that's... And I yeah. I do have a minor musing at the end. Apparently the British bus operator stagecoach. Stagecoach. Yeah, that's in the bottom of the article. <laughs> it's, it's like, kind of looks like their logo. It looks a lot like that. <laughs> I, I feel like... You know, there there isn't consistency here. So you have the Firefox overall. Well, the colors are icon. consistent. Yeah, the colors are consistent. But when you have Firefox Send, Monitor, and Lockwise, I mean, you would think if you had a main icon that they would maybe build some kind of icon into that for each individual sub product. But the sub products don't follow the same swirl scheme here. The color scheme, sure, but you have the overall Firefox symbol, and then you have the browser, which look nothing alike. Actually, none of the four icons look the same. I mean, it's easy to, to get caught up in branding here. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think they know what they're doing, I guess, but it is what it is. So either you like it or you don't. I guess the icon isn't that important at the end of the day, so I probably should uh, not worry about that too much. But just something to, to mention that you sh- should yeah. be seeing a new icon at some point when you do your app to it's get not a new upgrade program, or whatever it is. Your, yeah, whatever your <laughs> update package manager is, that's going to result in a new version so um, moving on from there plasma 516 i just love the progress that they keep making i mean gnome has slowed down quite a bit gnome 3 was a huge change gnome 3 is now older than gnome 2 Um, let that sink in for a bit yeah and gnome 3 makes changes like you know, runs a little faster. Maybe a couple new features, but usually not ui changes not not really not until just recently and not user-facing changes where you're just, oh, my gosh, I have to have this new version. But And Plasma used to be like that, too. The 4 Series slowed down after, like, the 10th release. This is the 16th release of Plasma 5, and it isn't slowing down at all. 
they are working super hard. They rewrote the notification system. And, of course, they have refinements to the themes. They refined the login screen. I mean, if you just look at, I could make an entire episode about KDE and the changes that they're making. This is equivalent to the amount of change in like a point three of a, of a new version. Um, th there's a lot of changes here. And there's even talk about WireGuard being implemented, but I don't know at what capacity. So I, I almost think that KDE, and I should say Plasma, but I say KDE, doesn't get a lot of attention. And what I mean is most distributions don't ship with it by default, but they're doing a really good job. So I would recommend checking that out. If you're using something like KDE Neon, you probably just need to update anyway. So glad to see that they're pushing that project along even further. And a quick note about Ubuntu 18.04. The latest GNOME update now plays nicely for 120, 144 hertz displays. Oh. And the reason why this is noteworthy, not just because of that upgrade, but we're talking about 18.04. We're not talking about a non-LTS release. The non-LTS releases get the new features generally and the, the improvements, but it's not as common for an LTS, which wants to stay static and stable, to get new versions or, or new features or improvements like this. So the fact that they did this when they didn't have to do this, and it's not even advertised that they would ever make a change like this in a static release or stable release, but this means that those of you with really awesome displays and you're run it, wanting to run 18.04, you'll probably have a much better experience on that. So I don't have that myself but that's definitely something I think is great to have. So good for them for putting that improvement in 18.04. And then I believe this is the last one I have. Uh, System D is now seeing continuous fuzzing by fuzzit. So um, that's pretty cool. So based, based on the article, what it's saying, and for the non-developers out there, fuzzing is basically the technique of automatically sending random, unexpected, faulty data to different interfaces basically to see how they re react doing these different tests. They're looking for things like crashes, memory leaks, um, and some other things here. So it's just going to benefit, I think. Looking for problems is a good thing because you'll probably find something. And if you do, then everything becomes all the more stable for it when we get the patches in there for it. Considering how important System D is, I think it's very good to have this type of thing happening. So. I just wanted to give that a quick mention that this is happening, which, um, you know, maybe if you're facing a bug, this might help them find the root cause and fix it. So, yeah. No, fuzzing, if um, it's used a lot in the InfoSec world, because whenever there's an application sitting out there, uh, we know all the knowns, like we're going to try all the common directories, but then sometimes you just go throw all of them at it. Throw, you know, especially in web application testing, this is how we discover some of these flaws in things like Confluence. Is someone's like, just hammer it, and oh wow, accepted that command. It shouldn't have done that. It's very useful in the C and C++ world as well, especially mm -hmm. when uh, you take any sort of user input. What happens if I put in a non-UTFA character? What happens if I put in emojis? What if I put in, like, uh, Arabic or Chinese symbols? What if I put in, like, millions of these symbols in any sort of combination. Um, you can attack, the, the fuzzing tool can attack these different interfaces that a particular piece of software exposes. Yeah. And you can yep. poke and break things automatically. And yep. uh, I, basically what you're doing is setting things out of range because of improper input validation. And those are still some of the most common flaws patched over the last 
20 years, someone did a study of all the, uh, listed all the flaws of what they were, and the out-of-bound is still by far, both in web application and in standard application, you know, unexpected input causing a crash which led to compromise of a system. So I'm, it's good that they're doing that. We need more fuzzers. Mm-hmm. Yep, but that's all I had. Cool. Do you want to start, Phil? Sure. Um, following on the coattails of uh, that fuzzing project, um, the Unbound uh, DNS Resolver uh, also got support from Google's OSS Fuzz project. Oh, good. So now builds of Unbound will be tested um, for these same kinds of problems. Very cool. Um, something else that I found uh, was uh, distrotest.net. So we alluded to this from the listener mail about testing um, various distros like Debian, Ubuntu, uh, CentOS, Fedora in Vagrant, but this project um, called DistroTest has currently 223 different operating systems and about 670 different versions of those OSs. Now you can go to distrotest.net and without installing any other software than your browser, you can play with all of these different OSs. You can destroy the hard drives. You can uh, install new software. You can take it for a full test drive. I think that is just too cool. Right now, it's experiencing um, the hug of death or the slash dot effect yeah. if it was like 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> so they're, they're down for maintenance, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. They've got, they've got so many different uh, distros on there to test out. I like I like their slogan, test it before you hate it. <laughs> yes, that is great. I may reach out to them and see if there's some way, one, I can help, two, learn how they did it so I can stand one up myself and maybe assist with this. I think it might be a fun uh, little side project. If you get into, yeah, if you get some details, let me know. Maybe I'll help out, too. Yeah, find out how much how much funding do you guys need to keep this up? Like, what's your server cost? Like, that's clearly <laughs> what they did. They, they hit some limit, and they're like, no, we're not ready for that AWS bill. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> But it's really right. cool. I, I test it before you hate it, though. How can you go wrong with that? I like the kind of gray, old-school look of their website, too. It's clearly a modern project because they have modern stuff on there, but they kept the old-school look, which makes me happy. I think, I think it's yeah, they did. Either they did that on purpose, but also it could be the case that these guys really understand Linux, like backwards and forwards, which they obviously do, but they're not graphic designers. They're not, you know. That's a common problem. You, you know, you see, like, the very smart developers with very simple we, websites. We brought up Eric S. Raymond. He's a prolific, amazing coder. By the way, look up Eric S. Raymond's website. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a limit to what he, where his knowledge stops, and that website is, is informative, <laughs> but not designed. It's actually, I don't think he's ever updated Ooh. it since the 90s. Yeah. yeah. I see it now. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> definitely a thing. Um, this, uh, this piece I got from a conversation on Hacker News, uh, Debian will possibly get, uh, PPA archives, uh, PPA is personal package archives, um, according to Debian maintainer, Alexander Wirt at the most recent, uh, mini Deb conference in Hamburg, Germany. Um, we've got the link to the actual talk in the show notes uh, and, his portion where he mentions uh, Debian PPAs starts at 39 minutes and 20 seconds. I hope they do get that. That's been one of the weak areas, I think, for Debian has been their, their packages are usually prehistoric. And yeah. yeah. 
And it's one of the things I like about running an Ubuntu basis show exactly. is, I, like I'd mentioned earlier, I had the PPA for Caden Live. I get a very clean, updated, stable version that works very well. So that's that's a good news. And uh, for security, um, on on Linux Journal, uh, there's an article called "Securing the Kernel Stack." So the Linux kernel stack is a tempting target for attacks. If a function gets called, uh, which then calls another function and calls another function, the kernel needs to remember the order of all of these different functions and keeps track of this in a stack, which is the history. Um, and if an attacker manages to trick the kernel into thinking it should transfer execution to the wrong location, it's possible that an attacker can run arbitrary code, uh, possibly with root-level privileges. Um, so that's pretty bad. Uh, kernel developer Elena Reshetova um, has has made a pull request uh, working on an approach to randomize this kernel stack after every single system call. So that way the trail is obscured and no one can predict um, what the stack was or could be. Hmm. So that's that's not merged in yet. There's a lot of uh, conversation going on about it. But that's that's very interesting because most recently we've been seeing uh, CPU branch prediction attacks. Yeah. And this would be a mitigation um, for future attacks uh, that could happen at the kernel level. So instead of instead of specifically targeting um, one application to fix, let's just randomize the entire stack for the whole kernel, and that could that could don't fix... they do that in BSD with the kernel randomization? I know that there's uh, memory. Uh, there's, there's memory. There's Castler and yeah. ASLR, um, but I'm not entirely sure on the BSD side. I think on the BSD side, and I'd have to dig this up. We talked about a long time ago. Um, they have a system that randomizes after every reboot or kernel rebuild where it sits in memory. That is Castler. Okay, that's the Castler one. Got it. So. This is interesting, though, know, because, I mean, this is one of those things where uh, we talked about before. What we say at a certain point in time is true. The fact that we were able to get data out of memory through branch predictions or uh, through kernel predictions, uh, pull keys out, or the row hammer that allowed us to pull things out of memory means it's that dynamic changing of, yeah, if I would have told you that wasn't possible a few years ago, I'd be wrong today, but right then because it wasn't possible. <laughs> Someone figured it out. So... Uh, this is good future thinking of looking at the previous attacks, going, what is the next attack vector you're going to do? And uh, interesting, I'm glad people smarter than me are thinking about that. For sure. <laughs> Since yep. It's always bad in post when, okay, we got to come up with a solution right now because these researchers dropped a, <laughs> dropped a basically a zero day on, on processor architecture, even though it was, I mean, what, they gave Intel like six to nine months on some of this, but it it's no easy way to fix. So... Fix it before it's broke. That's even better. And the last thing that I found, um, it's it's an update to the Oil Shell blog. So for those of you who don't know, um, Oil is uh, touted as an upgrade path from the Bash Shell. Um, it's it is the only language that Shell and Bash can be automatically translated to. So that way, when you when you are done using Bash entirely and you want a more fully featured shell and you don't want to use ZSH, uh, you will be able to go to OIL. And so what makes OIL different? Well, uh, OIL 
takes uh, Shell seriously as a programming language rather than treating it as a text-based UI that gets abused to write programs. <laughs> um, and uh, it's valuable to uh, people who write scripts, which get into hundreds or even thousands of lines of code. And uh, you, might, you might say, well, why don't you just use Perl or Python or Ruby? Well, that's not always feasible. You have to think about all of the projects that uh, shell scripts underpin. Let's say uh, Kubernetes or uh, Sysfy init or just there. There's so many projects that bash shell that bash scripts glue together. Um, so that's uh, probably a good way to put it. It just yeah. kind of yeah. So uh, this developer Andy Chu, uh, he maintains oilshell.org and he goes into very super technical. This is how I've been building this shell. This is why these particular decisions have been made. I've been following this for uh, a couple years now. So my um, problem right away is I keep wanting to say Shell Oil, <laughs> 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 the big oil company. Other than that, I so far like everything you said. <laughs> I, I'd say his blog is pretty slick. Oh, <laughs> I, I I feel as though that's a uh, this is going to open up to a lot of opportunity here for jokes, so. <laughs> which makes me like it more. Well, we like the you know dad jokes. It's the right time. Yes, don't hold back. So if you're looking for a slick shell, look at oil. <laughs> Keep your scripts running smooth. <laughs> All right. Well, the first thing I'm going to talk about is the XM flaw, and if you're not familiar with this, it's actually kind of an interesting. Uh, problem. So it, Steve Gitson did a little dive into it that I listened to, and I thought it was kind of funny because it actually takes seven days of beating it up. It basically gets things stuck in the queue that can escape and be executed as commands, but they have to be stuck there for seven days for this problem to occur. And basically, you have to do some trickery to lie about the timings of when emails were. So you put some basically uh, false information into the email and it treats it differently. So there, it's a really crazy that someone, I don't, I don't even know that fuzzing would have found this. I don't know. I didn't look into the researchers that found it, but it's a pretty impressive flaw. Uh, and what makes it bad though, is the fact that XM is everywhere. XM is the default for uh, Debian and a lot of other tools uh, as the MTA client. So uh, definitely something that we should be out there patching. And he had some further commentary. There's been a lot of, after he did some refactoring of the code um, to the newer version of XM, there's been a whole lot of uh, problems in it lately. So it probably could go through a good code review to find these bugs before it gets deployed some more. Specifically, uh, this bug was fixed in XM 4.92. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So make sure you're running the latest, uh, latest one. So, yeah, definitely real problematic. And, of course, the fact that everybody runs everything as root because they couldn't figure out a way to not do it uh, means you'll definitely be having root shell on a lot of these, as I understood it. Now, this is kind of interesting uh, both uses Ryzen and Linux, and it's the new Atari VCS console. It's kind of a computer, and it's kind of running Linux uh, and allows you to boot off other things. It's kind of like a hobbyist device. It's actually kind mm -hmm. of, it's a really interesting uh, console uh, from a name that I grew up in, you know, resonates in my childhood, Atari. Even has a little Atari logos on the controller, things like that. Um, but I think it's... Hopefully, they're going to pick up where the concept of the Steam console left off, and we're going to see some cool things in there. And there's a lot of talk that with very minor changes, it should be able to run any game that runs on Ubuntu, which I thought was a nice little uh, side note in there why I'm bringing it up. Hopefully, it does better than the Jaguar. 
Hopefully he does better than a Jaguar. That was uh, the last time we've seen Atari on something. Uh, <laughs> by the way, if you haven't seen the documentary, um, of the Atari documentary, one where they dig up the E.T. and everything like that, it's on Netflix. Uh, what is it called? Game Over, the story of Atari. Blows your mind because at one time, adjusted for uh, adjusted for inflation, Atari was worth more than Apple. And adjusted for inflation, they would have been the first trillion-dollar company. They were wow. making money at a rate that... Even Apple selling thousand dollar stands couldn't make. Like Atari was just making money. <laughs> uh, it was a crazy, crazy time there. Uh, as we alluded to in the beginning, CERN ditches Microsoft to take back control of the open source software. There's a little bit more nuance because CERN runs a lot of different things. They do run Linux already, uh, but it, this is for the functional office admin side. And what happens is Microsoft removed them as an educator, which mean, means they no longer fall under educator discount. Uh, and educator discount, Microsoft was always very, very uh, kind to, and that was kind of their marketing plan for a long time, make it really cheap for the educators, they'll use it, and then they will tell the minions who go out into the real world, oh yeah, I know Microsoft Office, therefore you as a company should buy it because you want to buy the product your end users know, and that was the market for a long time. And uh, so this is, they decided for whatever reasons, remove them out of that category, and uh, CERN said, well, that's that's not going to fit our budget. Um, <laughs> so that's definitely a problem. The licensing cost uh, went up at least 10 times. Mm-hmm. The big substantial change in uh, pricing on there. And it's funny, I was talking to one of my friends who in the 80s and 90s worked in the commercial software world, and he says uh, he frequently, the Microsoft Armies then, he said they wouldn't go to the tech department for licensing. He goes, they head right over to HR. And this is actually what was the transition that got Microsoft out of the school systems and why Google is dominated there now, and of course in some of these other areas too, because Microsoft would head to HR and count users. And they want to know how many people worked at the place, and then that's how they would base their licensing before they would talk to the tech department. I'm like, that's crazy. He's like, yeah, it was kind of weird. He goes, oh, the Microsoft licensing guys are here. The lawyers are hanging out with HR because they want to know how many people work here because they don't want to ask questions like how many computers. We want a license for all the users that you have here. <laughs> and, of course, back in the 90s and early 2000s, if you asked any IT guy exactly how many computers – before we had some central management, there's a lot. There's, I don't know, <laughs> 3,000? Oh, how many of our license? And no, no corporate entity has ever been fully properly Microsoft licensed. Because, by the way, there's a certification just to be licensed by Microsoft. There's a certification of understanding Microsoft licensing schema, which, by the way, is confusing dramatically. So uh, getting away from that model is good for CERN, I think. So, And will hopefully help the communities as well around it. Uh, they are becoming more transparent with Ubuntu 19.04, specifically dynamo, dynamic transparency in GNOME. <laughs> so I, I think, that, <laughs> you know, playing on the theme of dad jokes here. Apparently, this was a GNOME feature that they deemed unstable, but someone found a better way to implement it. So you can get some dynamic transparency in the top bar of GNOME. And this is a link over on o OMG Ubuntu, and they show how it would look and how the dynamic effect uh, kind of would be displayed in there. So it was actually kind of cool. Um, we love it because we know that the KDE is still on the show in terms of UI updates and things like that. But at least we can get a little transparency on GNOME, get a little polish put on there. Um, maybe this will be something that the folks over at System76 grab and go, we can do that. We can. I we can. They do. I mean, they already un, un, uh, unveil little things in GNOME that are not in the standard uh, Ubuntu distro, so that's kind of nice. My favorite editing tool for videos, Caden Live. 
got some bug fixes and updated. Anytime this thing crashes less, I am happy. I got to admit, though, I don't, because I know certain things cause a crash, I just don't do those things. I have my workflow that actually is pretty solid with Caden Live, which, by the way, I crossed the other day over 800 videos uploaded to my channel. I think I'm at like 804 now. So, wow. congrats. Yes. My obsessive behaviors um, played out. And I think on my channel, at least 99% of them are Caden Live. I started with OpenShot and then moved away from it um, to Caden Live because I had more features. So, I've been really happy. I've donated to this project, I've donated to their code sprints. So, this is like the fruits of their labor showing up. And it's it, it doesn't start a lot with feature. The the first word on most of the list is fix, 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 fix. Feature here, fix, 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 fix. So, which is good. That's what we want to see. Because uh, it actually has a lot of features. They just needed some polish or fixing. GIMP. That's how I do all my titles. Um, I got auto, off of Photoshop. I don't remember when, but it was a couple of years ago. It was probably the only reason I spun up a VM was to open up Photoshop. And it, part of it was just the interface, which GIMP is slowly, I hate, it, it's not the same as Photoshop, but at least they let me make, they give me the single interface that I'm used to like Photoshop. I'm still having trouble with the default GIMP workflow, but there's some easy customizations. It sounds like they're moving more in there. One thing that they've always been horrible, and this is kind of a Linux problem slash extension of GIMP having the same problems is the way the font support is, which I've maybe need to get better understanding of, but there's too many fonts that are useless that I don't know why are in there. So when you're trying to find a font, there's just a clutter of them. Uh, font management is actually something that is pretty good in the other things like Adobe. I'm hoping because I see they have, I've not tested this, but they have some improved font control. So hopefully that fixes some of the bugs I have with uh, managing fonts. And if someone has a clear explainer and handling fonts in Linux, please let me know. Like, there's so much crap in there. Like, I want to find a font and I can't. It doesn't have a nice search. It doesn't, like, the stupid tool that you had to display fonts in Windows uh, that will let you search it was always just better than what's, uh, and maybe it's just because I don't know about them uh, in there. So that's good listener feedback. If you know how to handle fonts in Linux good, let me know. That would be great. And uh, we were talking at the beginning of the show before we pressed the record button that, SSDs are getting below 30 bucks for like the 250 gigs and stuff like that. And over at Pharonix, they have some benchmarks of these inexpensive SSDs. By the way, you're hitting around that $100 mark for $100 mark for the terabyte SSDs. So uh, they have some benchmarks on there and it not directly Linux related, but kind of Linux related. You know, it makes my Linux laptop boot faster. No one wants spinning rust anymore. <laughs> so mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we are finally seeing solid states like actually take a notch out of the market as big as the drives are getting and the price is coming down on like your 10 and 12 and 16 terabyte um spinning rust drives but when you start seeing terabyte ssds and unless you're a data hoarder it fits most people's uses uh, if you're a data hoarder well you can never get enough drives and that's a whole different problem you have there <laughs> so i seen someone just posted on one of the uh reddit our data hoarders fun to look on there someone just built a 400 terabyte 420 terabyte storage server Wow, I'd love to have one. Yes, I don't know what I would, I, it's a pretty impressive. Yeah. They walk through all the build and everything, so it's it's an impressive setup, which it, it's exciting. Actually, um, one of the builds behind Jay right now is a bunch of 10 terabyte drives are filled in that, so that's a build video coming too. So, wow, yeah, you can never have enough storage when you're dealing with things like uh, we have a client that does sewer videos. I, turns out there was a need to store all this data so you got to build these big storage servers for that um and we have another uh, client that has to replicate data they handle some of the crash data uh for you know how like when they do car testing 
it just produces an immense amount of data because they shoot those cars with high-speed cameras and then they crash them. And whenever there's an issue with the car, they reference back to it if they ever think there needs to be a recall of how did it perform in crash tests. But that is a whole lot of data because there's like 20 cameras going all at high speed. So here's here's a 50 terabyte single vehicle crash. And by the way, how many different models of vehicles are? <laughs> they have a massive storage array for things like that. So it's kind of cool um, to see all this stuff coming to, coming to light. And I think that's all I have for the news. Nothing nothing else popped up in my head that I can think of that was significant. There's all kinds of security stuff, but I've kind of omitted because, like, there's a breach a day. Um, there's even a website to watch the breaches, and I've kind of eliminated it from some of my news cycles. I don't feel it's as Linux-related because even though they're running Linux, it's not Linux's fault they have it. It's usually some OPSEC problem. So I've kind I of agree. omitted some of those. I've been trying to focus the news on open-source things that are happening and maybe even some positive things that are happening because <laughs> data breaches are kind of depressing. It, yeah. It's just like watching uh, any other kind of news cycle. You you see one breach and then suddenly all of your news feed is just about breaches. And then you're like, well, we shouldn't even use computers anymore. Yeah. There's no right. hope. There's no hope. <laughs> well, we've been laughing because we have the How They Got Hacked series. And uh, so we bring up because it's now been almost as long as old as the series is the city of Baltimore. <laughs> 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 and we bring up every week we do it like, and their systems still are not running because, you know, reasons. And I think they're at like, a, was it 16 million or they're in the millions for recovery. They wow. refused to pay a $70,000 ransom because they wouldn't negotiate with them. And I'm kind of like, um, that's the taxpayer's money you messed with. From a taxpayer standpoint, I'll agree you shouldn't negotiate with them on principle. But I'll also say, do we spend $15 million? Or do we spend 70000 of my taxpaying dollars to fix something? <laughs> you just yeah. get aggravated in some type of thought spiral. So we'll quit talking about that. Hmm. <laughs> but you have been listening to the Sunday morning dad joke Reviews. <laughs> uh, this was episode 309. We're all a bit off. This is Tom Lawrence. Phil Parada. And Jay LaCroix. All right. Talk to you next time. Possibly with a new intro. <laughs> all right. Thanks. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs>